Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Grace and peace. Welcome back to the Book of Daniel sermon series. Now we're in chapters seven and eight. The goal of these chapters is to begin to present a series of Daniel's visions and their interpretations as each vision offers further revelation and a forward look to a time beyond Daniel's life. There are four main ideas we hope you walk away with. Antiochus Epiphanes, a dangerous figure that fulfilled many of the prophecies of chapter seven and chapter eight. The Antichrist, a malicious figure that occupies both prophecy of the past and an enemy still to come. Two behaviors we can expect from the Antichrist, murderous intent with villainous execution and narcissist cunning. Eventually, God will rule and destroy the Antichrist, that this story comes to a victorious and just end. Hold on to these ideas as they're being discussed today in this week's sermon. Well, good afternoon. How we doing, Epiff? Yeah, y'all good? Y'all were a little quiet during worship. Just look at your neighbor and say, I'm happy to see you. You know, there was a part of, of, of the song that was saying, I'm living in the joy now. I'm living in the joy now. And, you know, there's, um, it's pretty interesting when you talk to people and you ask people, you know, people that aren't just going to give you, I'm, I'm good, but actually want to be honest with you. You know, when you get into people's lives and you hear their stories, it's usually filled with some type of uh, pain point in their life, whether it was work. Uh, family drama at home, situations on your block, you know, uh, whatever it is. But when we trust in Jesus, there's such a joy that we get. It's a joy that's unspeakable. It's a joy that, you know, the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Some of us, the only reason we got strength is because we got joy. And the only reason we got joy is because we got Jesus. Anybody got joy this morning? Amen. It's so good to be in here with y'all, despite the road closures. And uh, I know many of you have had a hard time trying to get in. Some people were texting. It was serving and couldn't get in because of, uh, because of the, the Brooklyn Marathon. I don't know why New York does so many marathons. <laughs> I feel like every, since we started our church, it's always been marathons. It's, you know, marathons in the city. Then Brooklyn has its own marathon. But, and we have some people that are actually running in it today. But um, yeah, it's good. It's good to be here and good to see you guys. Those of you who, who are online, we are grateful that you are joining, um, joining in with us as we dig into the word of God. It's that time. So grab your Bibles, cut out the small talk. Let's get to it. Daniel chapter seven. Daniel chapter seven is where we are hanging out. Uh, we are back in our Daniel series. We have taken a detour last week because we wanted to... Uh, talk about the resurrection of Christ. It was Easter Sunday, and so that's that's what you do. We talk about a risen Savior. We celebrated his death on Friday, and uh, kids did an Easter egg hunt on Saturday, and then Sunday we got together, uh, and it was packed in this room, and we got to celebrate that the tomb is actually empty, but we are back in the book of Daniel. How many have been enjoying our Daniel series so far? Oh, come on. If you've been enjoying it, just let me know. It's, uh, it's been such a profound book. It's such a good book. It's such a pivot in chapter seven, and we'll talk about it in a second, but um, just some great things that have happened. Since we've taken a week off, and I know some of you are just jumping on, uh, let, me, uh, let me give you a quick recap. We started 
uh, over a month ago, and we were in chapter one, and chapter one started out with, um, with King Nebuchadnezzar overtaking Israel, and then they, they took some people back with them, and um, they became refugees, they became exiles. And the Bible says four of the many that they took, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, they chose to be different even while they were in Babylon. Y'all remember that? They didn't want to eat the king's food, and so they said, we won't defile ourselves. And then the Bible says that God made them 10 times better, 10 times wiser than everybody else. And it was all because they chose to be different. And so I told you guys, man, look, get out of here and let's let's choose to be different. You know, where you work and where you live, let's choose to be different because it's our difference that helps us to make a difference. Then in chapter two, remember King Nebuchadnezzar, it starts with him having the dream of a statue. Statue had different materials, gold, silver, and bronze. And um, Daniel got to exercise his gift while in Babylon. And his gift, one of his gifts was the gift of dream interpretation. Chapter three, I, I guess old Neb decided that he was going to act on the dream and he built his own statue. But in building his own statue, he was the head of gold in his dream. He built the whole thing gold. Y'all remember this? He built the whole thing gold. And, and, uh, and, and so uh, uh, Daniel had to, had to help him to understand um, and, 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 and help him to, to see that that's the, the wrong way. The Bible says that when he built the statue, the three of the Hebrew boys wouldn't bow down to it. They said, heat up the furnace to throw them in, and uh, God delivered them. And y'all ran out. We were shouting. God ran out of here. We ran out of here. We was like, yo, God delivers us from the fire. You know, the stuff that binds us, you know, Jesus delivers us from. He's in the, y'all remember this? He's in the fire with us. And then we moved on to chapter four, and we saw in chapter four that King Nebuchadnezzar still needed to be humbled. He was so proud. He's walking around Babylon and rocking, walking on the rooftop, and he was like, look at Babylon, this great place that I've built. And God made him lose his mind to the point where his hair began to grow like eagle's feathers and his nails grew like bird's claws. And the Bible says that he was like that for seven years. He ate grass, and then one day God was like, all right, enough. And he came back to his senses and at the end of that chapter, he praised and worshiped God. And that was the end of his reign. We don't know anything else about him after that. Uh, Belshazzar takes over in chapter number five, and he starts out trifling. You know, they, he starts out with a, with a party, and there's, 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 there's a lot of drinking, excess drinking that's going on. There's uh, obviously some type of sexual content that, are ha that is happening inside of this party because... Uh, the concubines are there, the wives are theirs, and he's like, man, bring out the consecrated stuff. Let's drink from the good stuff, from that stuff that, 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 that they bought from, from Jerusalem. And in the midst of the party, the Bible says a hand appears and writes, mene, mene, tickle, parsons. And basically the hand was God saying, tonight your kingdom's going to be taken from you. And by the last verse, Belshazzar dies. That's important for today as well. So let me let's pause there for a minute. Remember, he dies in chapter five. Belshazzar dies in chapter 5. Chapter 6, we talked about tamed lions. And King Darius put um, Daniel into the lion's den and God shut the mouth of the lion. Once again, a shouting week. We were like, yes, he shuts the mouths of lions. And, you know, we looked at the lions that are in our lives and we were like, God is able to tame these lions and, 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 and help you to live. And so we rejoice. And here we are in chapter 7. And uh, I'm actually going to go through 7 and 8 today because they're connected. It's it's dreams, it's visions, uh, it's Gabriel interpreting the dreams, which is interesting. In the first couple of chapters, Daniel was the one interpreting the king's dreams. Now he's the one having dreams. And 
The Bible says that the angel Gabriel is going to interpret. So today we're going to be talking about understanding the end times, understanding the end times. Let's um, let's pray. We definitely need to pray before we dig into these um, these verses. Uh, Father, would you open up the word that we may behold the wondrous things in your word? Help us to to be transformed today in this passage, which I would I would say is a, a difficult passage, a difficult some difficult chapters, but Lord, you use everything, everything. So I am confident that there is something in here for us today. So would you speak to us? Would you transform us? Would you renew our mind? Would you re- renew our behavior, renew, renew our thinking so that we can walk in step with you? It's in Jesus' name, I give glory and honor. Everybody say amen. amen. Somebody look at your neighbor and just say, do you want to understand the times? Look at somebody else and say, do, do you want to understand what the end of the world looks like? I'm going to lay my cards on the table real early, real, real early right now. Brad, that's a beautiful sweater, brother. Yeah, come on. Can we thank God for Brad's sweater? It just caught me. I didn't see the, the, the zebra print earlier today. I want to lay my cards on the table real early, um, real, real early. There's a few topics that I don't like to preach entire sermons on. I don't, I don't mind if we, you know, sprinkle them in a sermon, in, in an overall sermon about something else. But to preach entire sermons on these topics usually makes me a bit uncomfortable, uh, typically because I, they're, they can be confusing. Uh, sometimes these three topics that I have in mind, sometimes they can push against what culture Expect, expects. Sometimes they are not always easily relatable. Those three topics, the first one is, is this, uh, this doctrine called predestination. Again, I don't mind preaching on it. I just don't want to preach a whole sermon on it. Uh, simply because it, it, involved in predestination, predestination simply means God is sovereign. That's what grandma used to say. She didn't say predestination. She's God is sovereign, baby. God is in control. And, and while we believe that, and while I don't mind preaching on that, I think Um, underneath, embedded into this idea that God is in control, is that God is in control of our salvation. Now, if you're saved in here, you're like, praise God, he chose us. The problem is many people will then push that and say, well, God isn't loving because he didn't choose everybody. Because everybody's, everybody's not going to heaven. In fact, I would encourage you in your devotion this week to read Romans chapter 9, where the Bible talks about vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. I, I preached a whole sermon on it before, but it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable because I would rather have a conversation with you about it, not preach it, because I don't know who's in the room and I don't know what is uh, received and what's not. And one of the most frustrating things for a preacher is to be misunderstood. So I don't really like to preach on the topic uh, of predestination. I believe in God's sovereignty. I believe in God's election. I I believe that God saves who he wants to save because he got that, you know, type of power. You know, but those of you in this room that are like, ah, that is unloving. There's, he could choose everybody, but he doesn't. That's unloving. I'll say it this way. The fact that he chose any of us is loving. Let me say it another way. If he chose one person and sent the rest of us to hell, that's incredibly gracious because none of us deserve heaven. None of us, not one person. And so the fact that he saves uh, really points to his grace and his love. It doesn't push against it. I would say the second topic that I really don't like to preach entire sermons on is the, the scripture's complementarian views of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. We live in a time now where uh, we have completely demolished this idea of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, completely demolished it. You know, uh, Genesis chapter 
Uh, 5 verse 2 says, male and female, he created them and blessed them. And so, yeah, both male and female are both uh, valued and equal in dignity and equal in honor. But can we agree that we're just different? And that difference shows up at home. That difference shows up at the church. And so what happens is we push against it. We push against it. But I choose to rest in God's creative genius. But I'll be honest with you guys. I'm just laying my cards on the table. I don't often like to preach entire sermons on that topic. I'd rather talk about it. The last topic I would lay on the table is sermons on the end time. Your boy didn't wake up this morning bright-eyed and bushy-tailed to preach this topic today. Y'all know how I always come to y'all and be like, you know, the reason we go through books of the Bible is so that we don't skip over anything. I would have skipped seven and eight today. (laughs) I would have jumped right into nine because chapter seven and chapter eight is all about the end times. And the end times are interesting. There's so many different myths. And, and so to get into the scriptures, it's helpful for us. It's really helpful for us. But I don't really like it because I'll be honest, chapter 7 and chapter 8 reads a bit weird. Anybody read it? Chapter 7 and chapter 8, I mean, they're, they're talking about bears and lions with wings and leopards with wings. They're talking about talking horns and, and chariots that have wheels that are on fire. I read it, and by the end of it, I was just like, man, this is just, when you read it without studying it, it just, you come across confused. Right. In fact, let me say it this way. Daniel finished writing it, and in chapter 8, which is we're going to get to, At the very last verse of chapter eight, Daniel got completely sick. He got physically sick, not just for a day, for days. And then he ends and says, I didn't understand what I wrote. Let me read it to you real quick. Chapter eight, verse 27. I, Daniel, overcome, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. Wait a minute, Daniel, you got sick from the vision physically and then you walked away and said, I don't understand it. And you expect me to be excited about preaching about the Antichrist today? Your boy is just not excited. And so what I need from y'all is a little bit of help. Uh, I'll be honest that the flow today is probably going to be a little bit more different than you're used to. Uh, I'm usually trying to explain the text, but then apply the text and explain the text and then apply the text. I think it just works well. You walk out and you feel like I understood, but I also know how to apply. Well, today is explanation, 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 and a very little bit of application. But I just need y'all to rock with me just for a little bit. Uh, Trust me, it's not just me. Your favorite preacher has a favorite passage that he likes to preach that or she likes to preach that's easily understood, very relatable, easily to be, you know, applied and you walk out and feel like you can chew on something. Uh, But yeah, I'm not overly excited about preaching about the Antichrist. Nevertheless, I believe that something's in here for us to be transformed. Does that make sense? Although don't let my lack of excitement stop you from receiving what God is saying. I feel like I just messed the room all up. I had to tell myself this morning, I had to constantly remind myself of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. And then he says, and is useful for teaching. Wait a second. All scripture is useful for teaching. Can somebody just say that? All scripture, all scripture is useful for teaching. So that means my favorite passage and that means my least favorite passage. Let me say it another way. Chapter seven and chapter eight 
although I would say reads weird, is just as inspired by God as chapter one, as chapter two, as chapter three, as chapter four, as chapter five, and as chapter six. And so we're going to dig into this text and try to make sense of some of what Daniel is saying. A couple of things I want to lay before you before I jump in. Um, Chapter seven makes a pivot on many ways. Many ways. Chapter seven makes a pivot in language. So chapter one started out in Hebrew. Chapter two through six went to Aramaic. And then chapter seven through 12 goes back to Hebrew. And it goes back to Hebrew because chapters one through six really is about how to live life in Babylon. Chapter seven through 12 is not is no longer about how to live life in Babylon. Chapter seven through 12 is apocalyptic. All of it to the Jewish people, to God's people, to the people that God has redeemed. This is what's going to happen at the end time. Here's another pivot. Chapter one through six read as a story. We would call them in, in, in biblical terms a narrative. Just the same way uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke reads like stories or the book of Acts reads as stories. Chapter one through six read as a story. So it was easy for us to flow. Chapter seven through 12 is no longer stories. It's now uh, reading apocalyptic. And so I just need y'all to hang in there. There's still a very, very lot in here. But um, yeah, this is what we got. Now, let me just pause for a second and just say, I said it two weeks ago, but I want to say it again. Man, I'm just, I'm marvel. I really do. I marvel at how faithful Daniel was through his time in ministry. We ain't got no scandals on Daniel. There is no embezzlement of funds and there is no stealing church funds in the book of Daniel. Daniel has been faithful. Daniel, you know, the Persians overtook, um, uh, uh, overtook Babylon, which means um, there would have been Persian influence even while Daniel was there. Daniel doesn't have a PYT. You know what a PYT is? A Persian young thing. He just been faithful. He just been walking with the Lord and we have no scandals on him, he has been faithful. And I, man, this morning I got up and I was praising God for the faithfulness of Daniel. And I was going, God, my little tenure in ministry, Lord, give me another 30 to 35 more years of being able to get up here and yell at you and pastor you. The reason I need that is because, God, I just want to be faithful and you, I want you to use me however you see fit. Like, can you, like, you know, thank you for clapping. I turn 42 next week. But, you know, y'all have gotten the 30 and 40 year old me. You really need the 70 or 80 year old me. Last week I was talking about edibles. Y'all don't like, you know, y'all need the 80 year old, but well, who am I kidding? I'm, my age is only going to make me more reckless. All right, let's jump in. Verse seven, verse one, chapter seven. Y'all there? All right, y'all act like this is your favorite passage. In the first year of Belshazzar, pause for a second. I'll come back to reading. Why is Belshazzar named when he died in chapter five? Belshazzar, he, did he rise again? No, we celebrated the one who rose last week. Belshazzar is named here because chapter seven, this is also another turn. Chapter seven rewinds back a couple of decades. And so chapter seven tells us what was actually what Daniel was getting vision wise in chapter five. Does that make sense? All right. So he, it's not like some reincarnation. Uh, he's dead. But chapter seven goes back a couple decades in the first year of, um, of Belshazzar king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and his vision and, and, and visions in his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, four winds of heavens were stirring up the great seas. 
The four great beasts came out from the sea, different from one another. Here's the first one. The first was like a lion, and he had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, his wings were plucked off, and it was, and, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And, his, and, a mind was give, and a mind of a man was given to him. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of, bird, uh, of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads of dominion was given to it. Uh, verse seven. After this, I saw in the night of vision and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. And it had iron teeth, and it devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them, this is so important, another horn, a little one, before which three uh, of the first horns were plucked up by the root. And behold, this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uh, speaking great things. Jump to verse 17 real quick. These four beasts had four kings. Uh, these four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Jump down to verse 23. It says, thus he says, as the four beasts, there shall be four kingdoms on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns out of the kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise from them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, time and a half a time. That's three and a half years. Daniel just said a lot in these, these, these verses we just read. Daniel just said a whole lot. And can, can we agree, like, collectively that what we just read just is confusing? Like it, it just it don't make sense when you read it at one shot. But there are four beasts that are mentioned and the four beasts are incredibly important in order to understand the end times, but also to understand how God uses everything. We have to understand the four beasts. Now, I don't know if you're tracking along, but this uh, dream that Daniel is having is very consistent with the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a bunch of nations, but they gave them, uh, it was, they used the analogy of materials. So it was gold and silver and bronze. But here we are with Daniel's dream, and he's having a dream about, about a bunch of nations, but his dream isn't materials. His dream, the analogy, is animals. So we have lions, and we have leopards, and we have bears, and, and then we have a beast, and we don't know what beast it is, but there, in terms of what animal it is, it just says that there's a beast. And I think it's important that we make sense of all four of these. Again, there's going to be a lot of explanation, so take notes. Make me feel good today. <laughs> Verse 4 mentions the first beast. The first beast is a lion. Not just a lion, a lion with eagle's wings. It says the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. 
And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and had the mind of a man was given to it. The first animal that is mentioned, the first nation that is mentioned, this is in connection with Babylon. This would have been Babylon. And remember, it says the wings were plucked off. That shows us that Nebuchadnezzar was brought down. Y'all remember that? And then it says, then, then it was made to stand on, on its feet and gave, was given the mind of a man, meaning God restored the mind back into King Nebuchadnezzar. And so what we see here in verse four actually took place in chapter four. But I need us to pay attention. Daniel's prophecy, he prophesied and it happened. That's important. Let me go on. In verse five, a bear is mentioned. Here's what it says. It says in verse number five, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told arise and devour much flesh. The bear in the text, verse five, would have represented the Medo-Persian Empire, which we actually saw take over Babylon, just like Daniel was saying here. We saw it in chapter five. Don't miss this. The fact that that the animal was bigger on one side represents that within the Medo-Persian Empire was the Medes and the Persians. And the Persians outgrew the Medes and they became strong and the army became strong and eventually they took it over. So now we don't know Persia as the Medo-Persians. It's just the Persians because they overtook them. Just like Daniel said, Daniel prophesied it and it happened. And then the third animal is in verse number six, it's a leopard with wings. After this, I looked in another like a leper with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads. God, this is so specific. The beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. The leopard here with wings represents Greece. The fact that it has wings, uh, many commentators shows uh, it's the speed in which Greece took over the world. Do you y'all ever heard of Alexander the Great? Do you know that Alexander the Great in 323 B.C. conquered Persia with 35,000 soldiers to Persia's 100,000 soldiers? And he did it. He conquered the world by the time he was 30 years old. And so Greece moved fast. Let me pause here for a second and just show you how God uses everything. Greece takes over Babylon. Let me back up. Uh, uh, the, the, the Jewish temple was, was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed and the people were taken in exile. We saw that in chapter one in Babylon. Then Persia comes over and takes over Babylon. But guess what? Uh, not Persia, but Greece. Uh, but what you see happening is when Greece takes over, Greece unites the world with one language called Greek, Koine Greek. The reason they unite the world is for trade. It makes trade easier if we can all speak the same language. They thought that was the reason that they unite, unify the language, but God used it in the New Testament because the New Testament is now written in a language called Greek and the gospel is able to spread faster because we all understand the same language, but we all understand the same language because Alexander the Great took over the world by the age of 30. Does this make sense? So history here is so important. Daniel is so specific. He says out of Greece, four heads will pop up, will arise. And these four heads, actually, you can Google this. You can grab a history book and read this right now. That if you Google the four generals of Alexander the Great, there are four generals that rose in Greece and they became so power hungry that they started to fight each other and they literally divided the kingdom. Here's what's crazy. That actually happened 200 years after Daniel spoke it. So Daniel is so accurate right now. 
Daniel's, his specificity, is that a word? It feels right. It feels right. His specificity is so unbelievable right now. And here is why I just want to take a moment to pause here for a second. Here is one of the reasons why I trust the word. I trust the word because history proves the word. So in other words, last week I was going, yo, y'all need to trust the word. And I don't know why God is really pushing our church to, to trust in the word and, and trust in the reliability of scripture. But last week I was going, trust the word because, you know, the tomb is empty. Jesus said he would rise and he actually rose. That affirms everything else Jesus says. That affirms all of scripture. But yeah, that's one piece of it. But also trust the word because history shows that when something said it was going to happen, it happened. So Daniel says, look, Greece going to rise, but they're not only going to rise, it's four heads going to rise. And these four heads are going to be four different generals, and they're going to destroy the kingdom. And that is what is exactly what happened. I, I really don't have some hidden agenda to get you to start a 365-day devotional plan, although you should. My agenda this morning is to get us to trust the word. Daniel said it, and it happened. Therefore, if Daniel can be this specific... The rest of what Daniel has to say, I want to pay attention to. The rest of what the word of God has to say, I want to pay attention to. Because God used Daniel in such a way to be so specific, it lets me know that the word of God is truthful. And this, this is why, man, this is why I want to, I want to encourage y'all. Like, I really do. I, I know that some of you came in here and you're not fully trusting the Bible. You, you have some questions. Maybe you think there's contradictions. Trust the word. History proves it. Hear me, trust the word, history proves it. And many people, some of you online right now, you dibble and dabble in the Bible and you trust the Bible, but you also trust a whole bunch of other books. So as I believe in the Bible, but I need the Quran too. I need, I need the Bible, but I need the ancient writings too. I need the Bible. What about them lost books, Pastor B? Give me the book of Thomas. What about the found book? Read the 66 you got. And this is why I'm, I really want to push to us as a church, be faithful over trusting the word, live your life by it, apply the word of God. Daniel spoke it. 200 years later, it happens. And so I trust the Bible, uh, yes, because the tomb's empty, but I trust the Bible because history proves it. When the Bible says a kingdom was put up, you can trace it in history, it was put up. When the Bible says a kingdom came down, you can trace it in history, it came down. When the Bible says a king was born, you can trace it in history and find that that king was born. When the Bible says that a king died, you can trace it in history and find that a king died. When the Bible mentions a location, you can get on a plane right now and go find that location. Why? Because history proves the Bible. Archaeology proves the Bible. Astrology proves the Bible. Science is not in contradiction but it proves the Bible. It can be trusted. Look at your neighbor and just say, trust the word. Oh, so I went to I went to Israel. Ty said I talk about Israel all the time. I do. I went to Israel and, you know, it's so interesting. There's a pool there. Y'all remember John 5 when um, there's a story of Jesus healing a man that was lame for 38 years and he was sitting by the pool of Bethesda. Anybody heard that story before? Do you know that many people tried to disprove and discredit the authenticity of the Bible based on them not being able to find the pool of Bethesda? Thousands of years, they couldn't find it. They're like, this Bible's not accurate. It says that this pool is here. And, you know, John gives a lot of detail. He doesn't just say a pool. He says a pool with five colonnades. In other words, a pool that has uh, different porticos or walkways. A pool that has all of these walkways is what he mentions, and nobody could find it in 1888. 
archaeologists are digging and digging, and they come across the Pool of Bethesda, and guess what? It had five colonnades. Why? Because the details matter. The details prove to us the proof of, uh, of the scriptures. So when I went to Israel, I actually went to the Pool of Bethesda. And when I got to the Pool of Bethesda, your boy saw five colonnades. Why? Because history proves the Bible. This is why I say archaeology pro- proves the Bible. Somebody needs to trust the Bible a little bit more. Somebody needs to trust the word a little bit more. Someone needs to, like, don't just open it and read it for some academic study. This is the breathed word of God. It is accurate. It is infallible. It's without error. It's without contradiction. It is trustworthy, and you should be able to apply it to your life. The Bible is true. And what I love about the scriptures is they outlive us. We're going to die. We, every one of us in this room has an expiration date, but you know what doesn't have an expiration date? The word of God. It spans generations. It, it, it cultures, different ethnicities, different languages. Here's what Isaiah will say. Isaiah 40 will say, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. I trust the word, yes, because the tomb is empty, but I trust it because history proves it. He just said, Greece is going to rise up. And they're going to do it fast. It happened. He said there's four, four heads that are going to pop out. And you have these four generals. And they all destroy Greece. So he's accurate so far. Okay, there's another beast here. Y'all rocking with me? Verse 7. Verse 7 says, After this I saw um, in the night a vision. And behold, a fourth beast, terrifying had a dreadful, exceedingly strong, and it had iron or great iron teeth. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different than all the other beasts before it, and it had ten horns. This fourth beast represents Rome. The fact that it has iron teeth, I think we should know. Remember the statue, the iron legs was also Rome. And so the fact that it has iron, do you see how you describe Rome? This is why last week I was in here, I was going, yo, I know the tomb being rolled away. I know all of us are like, yo, the stone was rolled away. But you know, I marvel at the fact that Rome's soldiers got dropped. Because the text just described Rome's army as iron teeth. They were merciless. They were ruthless. They they were, I mean, they would destroy anybody that was in their path. And so, so far, this dream that Daniel is having is tracking exactly like Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But, ooh, there's a difference. There's a difference that Daniel now introduces us to. So he talks about all these nations, but he, he stops talking about nations and talks about a person. Pay attention to verse 8. I considered the horns. And behold, there came up among them a a horn, a little one. It says, uh, before which these three other horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth speaking great things. Do me a favor. Jump to chapter eight real quick. It's the same explanation. Verse 23 in chapter eight. It says, And at the latter end of the kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limits, a king bold face who understood riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fear a fearful destruction and shall succeed at whatever he does. 
and destroy mighty men and people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. Let me say that again. Without warning, he shall destroy many. That's important. I'll tell you why. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken. And, but by no human hand. This, 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 what he's laying out in verse eight and then in chapter, in, in verse eight of chapter seven and then chapter eight, verse 23 to 25, what he's laying out has dual meaning. Don't miss this. This might be a little hard to fathom, but this prophecy is what we would call already, but not yet. This prophecy actually already was fulfilled, but it's also something else coming. Let me say it this way. This prophecy, everybody agrees that this prophecy has a direct fulfillment in 170 B.C. to a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Take that name down. Study it this week. They call him the Hitler of the Old Testament. Because what he would have done is when he overtook Jerusalem in 170 B.C., he gets into Jerusalem. He kills 80,000 Jews on the spot, pregnant women, children, all the men. Then he took some back for slaves and then he marches his little butt into Jerusalem and marches it into the temple, gets into the temple and sets up shop, makes his own altar, makes the Jews eat swine, which is against their laws, he was ruthless. In fact, he had coins that had on it uh, King uh, Antiochus, God in the flesh. All of this is fulfilled in a person named Antiochus Epiphanes. The utter blasphemy, utter disrespect, was, was a ruthless leader. But if you just read that this is already fulfilled, we'll stop looking for something else coming. And what happens is, you know, he, he dies. And notice it said he doesn't die by human hands. He literally gets a stomach virus, goes insane, and drops dead. He wasn't shanked in the shower. You know, nobody poisoned him. He died, again, because Daniel was specific. He says in verse 25, he dies not by human hand. God dropped him down. But he arose just like, just like uh, Daniel said. Now, what we can do is we can read this and be like, oh, okay, we good. But do you know Jesus, Paul, and the apostle John all refer back to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8? And when they refer back to Daniel chapter 8, they don't point to Antiochus. They point to something else coming. They warn us. Je Jesus quotes Daniel. And in the midst of quoting Daniel, he is saying, there's something else you got to look for. So, yes, Antiochus fulfilled this passage, uh, but he did so, I would say, under the influence of something else that's coming. What am I talking about? The Antichrist. Jesus uses this passage, and this teaches us about prophecy. Jesus uses this passage and says, it's already but not yet. Yeah, it, yeah, it happened, but there is still something else to come. In, to come. Let me explain who the Antichrist is. It's a person that is deeply influenced by Satan. His Antichrist is not Satan. He is influenced by Satan and is extremely charismatic, e extre extremely well-spoken. He comes across as though he's a person of peace. The Bible just said that he's a man of riddles and he understands he's, I don't know if he's going to be in politics. You know, when I was born, everybody was the Antichrist. Everybody, Jimmy Carter was the Antichrist, Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist. Nowadays, Vladimir Putin is the Antichrist, Obama's the Antichrist, uh, Trump is the Antichrist. That might be, no, I'm joking. I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. I don't do politics, I'm joking, I'm joking. But I, I'll say it this way. We don't know if the Antichrist is here, 
But here's what we do know, that the spirit of the Antichrist has already been here. Oh, man, I got to put Bible here. Let me read a scripture to you. Here's what John says in 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour. And you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have already come. So what John says is, yeah, we're still waiting for the Antichrist to come. But the spirit in which the Antichrist operates has already been here. Well, what's the spirit in which he operates? Verse 23 says he'll devour the whole earth. He'll devour much flesh. Verse 25 says, without warning, he'll destroy many. So whenever you see genocide and whenever you see mass killings, we can always say that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Let me make this make sense. American slavery is operating under the spirit of the Antichrist. The Holocaust is operating under the spirit of the Antichrist. Osama bin Laden conducting planes to fly into uh, the World Trade Buildings is operating under the spirit of the Antichrist. These mass shootings that we see are operating under the spirit of the Antichrist. A white supremacist walks into the 16th Street uh, and bombs uh, kids and women while they are worshiping. That's not just evil. That's a different level. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. What about in 2012 when a man walks into an elementary school? It's kids and shoots up, the, shoots up the, the, the building and lays all of these kids out and they, they all pass away. You can, you can chalk that up and be like, man, that's bad morals. You know, that's no home training. And you can, you can even say that's evil. Or you can say, you know, we need stricter gun laws. But how about we call it at the root of what it is? It's the spirit of the Antichrist. It's not just evil because he shall devour much flesh. He will devour the whole earth. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And so let me warn us not to read these, 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 these prophecies of Daniel and simply go, oh, that was fulfilled in Greece. Oh, that was fulfilled in Babylon. Oh, that was fulfilled in Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, Antiochus Epiphanes already fulfilled that. Fulfilled that. We're good. Jesus says, no, something else is still coming. Paul says something else is still coming. And here's why, you know, this spirit of the Antichrist is why we have to be so prayerful and cover ourselves and our babies and our family members in prayer because Ephesians 6 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Spiritual darkness, cosmic powers and present darkness and rulers and spiritual forces, the Antichrist is what we are, are, are fighting against. The other night I was, we was having a Netflix and chill night, me and Ty, and you know, she was scrolling on her phone so she wasn't really paying attention to what movies I was watching the trailers for. By the way, you know, sometimes when you watch trailers, they tell the whole movie. And so sometimes I'm like, oh, I just got the whole movie in two minutes. But I'm, I'm clicking through and I click on this movie called Ouija. And I don't know if y'all seen it, I didn't watch the movie, but I clicked on the trailer. And the trailer started, Ty never looked up. She's like, mm-mm, <laughs> turn that off, turn that off. Because spirits run. I remember when I was a kid, no lie, we would have people come to our house. I don't know if my father is watching, but we would have people come to our house. And every time people left out of our house, my father would get the anointing oil. He'd walk around and he'd bless the whole house. I would wake up with, you know, I had friends sleep over. We'd have a cross on our forehead of oil. My father played no games with spirits. Because this idea of the spirit of the Antichrist is already here. I would say that the spirit of the Antichrist also operates, I think, in addictions. I do. I don't, I don't think you just get hooked. I think the spirit of the Antichrist is operating. And this is why we got to be so, so, so prayerful. I think a, a, a mass of suicides. Everybody drink the Kool-Aid. This is 
operating under the spirit of the Antichrist. Can I show you one thing about the Antichrist uh, before we land the plan? I want to show you one thing about the Antichrist, how we know, because many people are going, yo, like tomorrow is, is, is the day, it's judgment day. First of all, none of us know the times, but there are some triggers. There are some things that we can understand a little bit better. Do you know in chapter nine, I'm not going to preach it. We'll preach. We'll talk about chapter nine later. But in chapter nine, it ends talking about the rebuilding of the temple, the Jewish temple. Now, if you know anything about the temple, it's been built and destroyed and built and destroyed. In fact, 70 AD, when Rome took over Jerusalem, they destroyed it and did not rebuild it. But years later, um, years later, uh, 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 Muslims, the Islam took over what, what you call the Temple Mount. To this day, the Temple Mount is controlled by Islam. To this, to this day, Jews don't control it. They lost it years ago. In fact, they lost it in 1967. Uh, this guy named uh, Mor- Morshi Dayan. He, he was the prime uh, minister, not the prime minister, the Israel, uh, Israel's Ministry of Defense. And he created this peace treaty and literally lost control of the temple. So therefore, if you and I go to the temple right now, you actually couldn't go in. The reason you can't go in is because it's under Muslim control. Now, here's what the Antichrist will do. If I understand scripture right, the Antichrist will one day come in. Remember, he's going to deceive many. He's going to come in like a person of peace and he's going to create this peace treaty. And in this peace treaty, he's going to bring uh, Muslims and Jews together, and they're going to rebuild the temple. Now, don't miss this. Next to the Temple Mount today, there's enough space for them to build another temple. Right now, they can do it. And so what's going to happen is Daniel said, remember, everything else Daniel said came true. Daniel says at the end of chapter 9, here's how you know the end times. The temple's going to be rebuilt. Right now, it, it can't happen tomorrow because the temple's not under Jewish control. That, at that time, the Jews will go back to the sacrificial system. And here's what verse 27 of chapter 9 says. Here's what the Antichrist will do. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's the peace. And seven days. And then it says, in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifices and the offerings. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end is decreed and poured out on him. Do you know Jesus affirms this? He quotes this very passage. But when he quotes it, he tells the people, when y'all see the desolation inside of the temple, he says, run to the hills. Here's how he says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, verse 15 and 16. So when you see the abomination of the desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, that's the temple. Let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Paul picks it up and he says in 2 Thessalonians 2, do not let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will come, that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, that's code name for the antichrist will be revealed the man doomed to destruction he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called god and to be worshiped so that he sets himself up in the temple in the temple in the temple that's exactly what daniel said paul says he's going to set himself up in the temple proclaiming to be praised by god jesus and paul both use daniel chapter 9 use use daniel i don't know the antichrist was coming in right now don't worry (laughs) Scare me, bro. Scare me. 
Ooh, Jesus. See, this is why I don't like preaching on the end times. I get fidgety. Anything messes me up. Somebody went to the bathroom. I thought it was the Antichrist. I'm worried. Jesus and Daniel both go back to Daniel chapter 9, and they talk about the temple. And they say when the temple is built, the Antichrist will come into the temple, and he's going to desolate it. He's going to defile it. I know Antiochus Epiphanes did that. Yeah, he set up his own altar, but that ain't the end times. It's already. But here's the not yet. The Antichrist will come and do the same thing. And when he comes, believers run for the hills because you can be sure that Christ is coming back. Now, here's I don't want us to walk out of here depressed. Remember, he, he was sick for days. I don't want us to walk out of here and be sick for days and walk out of here misunderstanding. Please don't get it twisted. Yes, yes, yes. I agree that the, the Antichrist is smart. He's charismatic. He's powerful. I don't, he's charming in some way. He's good with riddles, but your boy's going to be destroyed at the end of the time. He, he will be destroyed. In fact, I'll end by reading verse number 11 in chapter 7. Here's what Daniel says in verse 11. He says, and I looked and a beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. So so Daniel says, yeah, this, this thing is going to come. This antichrist is going to come. I'm going to give you all these nations going to happen. And then here's the end times. The antichrist is going to come. But please don't worry. He's going to be destroyed. And not only will he be destroyed, but he will be put in hell, which is what hell was created for. You know, there's something called the unholy trinity. You ever heard of this? The unholy trinity is the antichrist, Satan, and false prophets. And the, 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 the hell was created for all of Satan and his demons and his imps. And here's why you should rejoice. And here's why you should walk out and be uh, uh, devoted to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is going to conquer the Antichrist. He's, he's going to destroy him. I know how the story is. I ain't worried. I'm worried now, but I, I ain't worried. I'm confident. I can walk with a little bit more swag. Because I know how the story ends. Do you know when, when, when Paul talks about the end times in 2 Thessalonians, actually in 1 Thessalonians, when he talks about the end times, he ends and he says, encourage each other with these words. Right, encourage each other? How do I find encouragement in the, these passages? Here's how you find encouragement, verse 11. He's going to destroy the Antichrist and put him in hell. That's the confidence I have in Jesus Christ. And here's, you know, we can sit in here and we can go, well, why does he, you know, why does he have to do this? Why does God have to, why don't he just like take him out? There's a per he uses everything. He has purpose. Throughout history, Daniel, I'll close here. Daniel has shown us all of these great nations, the rise and the fall of them, but all of them he used. You know, we talked about how Greece would have united the world under one trade language but God redeemed that and used that to be the very thing that spread the gospel do you know that when Persia took over Babylon Persia actually rebuilt the temple and rebuilt Jerusalem and did it on their own dime why is that important because we need Jesus to come and have a temple and, and, a, and a place to go into in a, you know, in, in a Jewish uh, Seneca heat. We needed that and so Persia rebuilt it we're reading we're going well, why does Persia got to rise up God used it. What about Rome? Rome? Rome is 
known for creating what we would call roads. They created roads and systems and structure that the world did not know until Rome took place. And we're reading today and we're going, well, why does Rome have to rise into power? Why did they have to have iron teeth? Well, God used it. Why did he use it? Because when Jesus steps on the scene and then he does the work of salvation, the apostles are now able to go to Samaria and Judea and, and the uttermost parts of the world. Why? Because Rome built roads. Rome built roads because God used them. He uses everything. And some of you in this room right now go, oh, man, like, you know, I'm going through so much. And, you know, why do we have to deal with the Antichrist? God is going to use it. He's going to redeem it. And I don't know how. Even Daniel ended and said, I don't understand it. Why don't he don't understand it? Because he's never met Antiochus Epiphanes. He doesn't know Alexander the Great. But he knows that God's word is true. And if God said it, it's going to happen. Every head bow and every eye closed. This is just not one of them sermons we, we can do an altar call. But he uses everything. You know, Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. He waited for all of these kingdoms and stuff to rise up. Then he sent his son. And if he sent his son the first time, I trust he's going to send him the second time. And when he sends him the second time, oh man, I feel like I'm still preaching. When he sends them the second time, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that when the Antichrist is destroyed, he's destroyed merely by looking at the appearance of Jesus. Jesus don't even got to flex his muscles. He don't even got to fight. Paul says he destroys them by the breath of his mouth and by his appearance. I'm so glad I serve a king like that. Father, I pray for everybody in this room. I understand how reading passages like this can make some of us anxious and Make us worried. I pray for the one that doesn't know you. Your wrath is something that is unbearable, something that none of us want to experience. And we don't have to if we can just put our faith in you. Because your wrath was completely poured out on Jesus so that we wouldn't have to experience it. And so, Father, now I, I just got so much confidence, not just now, but I have confidence of what the end time is going to look like. Jesus is going to conquer just like he conquered the first time he came. Just as he ruled over demons the first time he came. Just like he conquered sin and death the first time he came. He will come back for us. Father, may we be ready. May we be found with our lamps burning. May we be found confident in his work so that we can spend eternity with you while the Antichrist goes and spends eternity in hell. Father, help us. And I pray for the one that doesn't know you. May they come to know you today. May they give their life to you today. Tomorrow is not promised. Shoot, today is not promised. Life is really like a vapor. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this passage in some way. That you would use this passage to help us to be more confident in your word. Because Daniel said it and this stuff happened. And you used Daniel. Would you help, it, help us to be more confident in Jesus? Verse 11. He will conquer all things, including the Antichrist. So, Father, we thank you for the confidence that we have and the boldness that we have in Jesus. You use everything for your glory and your honor, even the stuff we don't understand. So, Father, this stuff today that we read, use it so that you can be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.